Just a reminder about a couple of things. The Chafer Conference begins uh, March 13th, and we'll go for those three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We ask that everybody please register just so we can properly plan all the logistics and things of that nature. Uh, takes a lot volunteers, so anybody wishes to help out in different areas, we have sign-up sheets for that out in the fellowship hall, and you can uh, see what the needs are. And then if you have any questions, you can uh, talk to Roberta Beaver. Also, uh, plan ahead uh, for the men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting, which is going to be in mid-March. Um, Alan's not in here. I thought we said it was going to be the 13th, and this says the 18th. Um, okay, that's it for the announcements. The other thing I want to announce, this just came, and it is hot off the press. And I just got my uh, copy today. It is a new book by my good friend, Dr. Tommy Ice, called The Case for Zionism. Why Christians Should Support Israel. Tommy's been working on this for about 10 years, and I've read and worked on and used bits and pieces of it here and there. It's a great, uh, great book. Uh, at least I said something like that in, uh, in the endorsement I wrote on it. But he's got endorsements from, uh, from people like Randy Price, uh, Mike Vlock, who's a, a professor at Master's Seminary. If you've been to... Um, the the uh, Chafer con I mean the pre-trib conference you've heard him you've heard uh, people like Mark Hitchcock and Paul Wilkinson Andy Woods uh, we've all written uh, endorsements for that so it's a it's a good book and I encourage you to uh, uh, to read that before we begin this evening we'll have a time of silent prayer a time to looks like something disappeared from up here. Did you get it? The the keypad? I mean the oh, no. Eddie was working on Yeah, I noticed the other day that it was corrosion from the battery was yeah. Okay. okay. Thanks for checking that. I just saw it Sunday morning. Okay. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and then uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, using First John one nine, if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful, thankful to you for all that you provide for us, all that you've given us, all that you have done for us. When we contemplate the cross, when we contemplate our salvation and all that was needed in order to provide such a great salvation, we're just overwhelmed. There's so much that was brought about by Adam's decision to sin and its corruption in the creation and in, our, in every individual human life. And yet, it is your grace that provides such a perfect Solution, one that is free to us, but cost you your son. Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for your grace, your faithfulness, your goodness, the way you supply our every need. Father, we are mindful of those on our prayer list, those who are part of our congregation who are facing various uh, debilitating diseases, as well as just the uh, uh, horrible effects of, of growing older and father we pray for those who are homebound now and those who are facing what could be serious life-threatening diseases that you would strengthen them that they might be a faithful witness to your grace and your love and that you would provide for their needs provide for us tonight from your word that we might be encouraged to walk with you more faithfully in our day-to-day -day life we pray this in christ's name amen all right we are in psalm 57 Psalm 57, and as we have been studying for some time now, this is, I believe, the 84th lesson in our Samuel series. Uh, we're in that section of Samuel where David is fleeing from Saul going through the wilderness experience. And it is a time when he writes a number of psalms that have historical notes on them. Not all the psalms do, not all of David's psalms do, 
But there's about nine that come from this period, and we've been studying those in context as we go along. And last time, we began with Psalm uh, 57. I got through the first verse, which I think sets the tone for the uh, for the psalm. It's a lament psalm, as I pointed out, where he is calling upon God to solve a problem. He is facing opposition. It's very similar, as we'll see, to Psalm 56. A lot of the same words, a lot of the same ideas, a lot of the same themes. And so uh, he, he's crying to God and expressing his trust in God and his confidence in God that God will deliver him. So there's a lot here that we can learn. It's a lament psalm. Um, as I as I said, the basic outline is that the first five verses, or six verses, uh, reveal David's cry to God for help, that God would intervene, that God would protect him, God would be his refuge. That term is used twice in verse 1, as I pointed out last time, although it is only used once in English translations. It's actually used twice in the Hebrew. The second half is when David praises God for his deliverance of him. And it teaches us that when God delivers us, we should praise him, which doesn't mean to say praise you, God, or praise the Lord. Uh, we should thank him, which doesn't mean just thank you, Lord, that that the Psalms give content to what it means to praise God, uh, to describe what he has done, uh, to also to declare it to the world. But it is much more than this very superficial idea that we praise God by simply saying praise God. And one of the things that you should note as you read through the Psalms is that these are hymns. These are the words for hymns, and they should tell us a lot about the kinds of things that we should sing because the phrases and the terms are not endlessly repeated, which is something you often see in contemporary uh, choruses. Uh, That's not Christianity. That has affinity with Hinduism, just this mindless repetition. It also is not something that that really honors the Lord. And as you see in the title I've given this lesson, if we're able to get through the rest of the psalm tonight, in verse 5, we read, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory, which is a term for his essence, let your glory be above all the earth. And that's sort of the chorus in this psalm. And if you look at verse 11, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Uh, This is the ultimate purpose in these psalms, even the lament psalms, is to shift our attention to God and his essence and his glory and to describe it and to call upon people to lift God up and to uh, give specifics about how God has delivered us and how God has provided for us. And what we don't see is the trivialization of God and his character through um, language and through the endless repetition of certain simplistic phrases, which is too often the characteristic of contemporary worship. And, And sadly, what I think that reflects is that there's a real poverty of of a biblical knowledge and spiritual depth in the souls of many Christians today. It, it reflects the fact that even those who, who write some of these psalms are still so focused on themselves because the I word is used again and again and again. And it, instead of taking a hymn such as um, How Great Thou Art, which is more contemporary, or A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, uh, on any number of, of uh, historic hymns, you, you see that the focus is on who God is and what he did for us, not on my love for God, as if my love for God is that important. And that's often what we hear in contemporary songs. And so we should use the words that we read in the Psalms to elevate our own thinking and the depth of our own expressions to God when we are praying and when we are uh, praising God. This is to give us a biblical pattern 
for how we should be communicating to God. And yet what we find so often, and this just plays right into the devil's hands, we, we trivialize worship and we use uh, endless cliches to express uh, what little we express when we pray. And, and we need to be careful with that. We need to have a higher standard. And so we, we see this as David has reflected upon his, his circumstances. The superscription, which is listed as verse zero in computer programs and is usually precedes the first verse in English translations is actually the first verse in Hebrew text because that is considered to be part of the inspired text. It's written, we see, he gives instructions. It's for the chief musician. It means do not destroy. We don't really know what a miktam is. That is a certain form and style of of him and poetry. We have po- poems that are sonnets. We have others that are, are ballads. Uh, we have a different genre of poetry, and so that's what this is. It's a certain class, and we can't, don't really know. Scholars have not been able to discern specifics about about that structure, but they understood at the time. And he wrote this after fleeing from Saul, expressing his his complete uh, anxiety, fears, the, the the stress that has invaded his soul because of these uh, uh, unjustified assaults and the pursuit uh, by, by Saul of David, of his family who has come, joined him at the cave of Adullam, and of others that began to uh, follow David because they lost their homes, they lost their property because of the tyranny uh, of, of Saul's government. Uh, there's a couple, there's several caves in this area. We know from First uh, Samuel chapter chapter twenty two that there's the cave of Adullam. There were other caves. It just says in the superscript here that he we fled from Saul into the cave. So it's usually assigned to to the cave of Adullam, but it could be uh, any time during this particular uh, period. Last time we spent our time looking at the first verse where he cries to God to be merciful. This is the Hebrew word chanan, which means to apply grace to him. It's from the root word for grace, and mercy is really applied grace. It is to call upon God for undeserved favor, for unmerited kindness, and it's repeated uh, twice for us. This is, I said, the technical term for this is an epizuxis, and we'll have a test on that when I get back, so work on it. Uh, this just means the re- repetition of certain key words, and we see it several times as we go through this particular um, this particular uh, psalm. Uh, for example, down in verse eight, "Awake, my glory! Awake, lute and harp." That's another uh, another example of that. We have uh, a repetition of some phrases uh, early on. In verse 3, God will send forth his mercy and his truth, and mercy and truth are repeated in verse 10. Um, this is what we see. I'll point out a couple of other uh, examples of this uh, as we go through it, but it's designed for repetition and to get the attention of the reader that he is crying out to God for mercy. And he says, my soul trusts in you. This is the word we see in the lower right here, chasah, which means to take refuge. And it's used again in the next line, in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge. And so it pictures trust here as the act of seeking refuge, to seek a place of of escape and protection from God. So it's not a word that specifically means trust, like batach, but it's a word that that pictures it in, in very... Uh, uh, very picturesque language. My soul trusts or takes refuge in you. And then we have a zoomorphism, as I pointed out last time, where uh, an, something about an animal is ascribed to God, uh, something he doesn't actually possess. God doesn't have wings. Uh, but it's designed to take a, an analogy from God's creation that God built into his creation so that it could be used by him to uh, depict an aspect of his person, in this case, his protection of people, 
uh, or sometimes it's his plan or his policies, but here it's the idea that like a like a bird, a uh, mother bird hovers over her her young and wraps her wings around the young. It pictures how God uh, wraps himself around us so that we can take refuge in his protection. Uh, until these calamities, and that's the word in the lower right, hava, which means until these these disasters have passed by, the, these, these uh, horrible uh, adversities that David is going through. I concluded last time, how can we have this kind of trust? We read in this first verse the trust that, that David exhibits here to take refuge in God despite these circumstances. And I concluded by saying, how can we trust God like that? First of all, we have to know his word, which means we have to really internalize it. We need to read it and study it, think about it. It's not just a matter of hearing it taught. We need to read it, every one of us, over and over and over again. Uh, read it through once a year. Read it through twice a year. Read it through as often as you can so that you can. it becomes a part of your thinking. It's going to enhance your life in a, any number of ways. Some people I've heard say, well, I don't understand it. Great. Read it 30 times. You'll understand a lot more the 30th time than you did the first time. But if you don't read it 30 times, if you don't read it one time, you'll never understand it. So read it. Read it again. Read it again. Uh, I've read it I don't know how many times. And there are sections I go, I go I scratch my head and go, well, I'll figure that out eventually when I get around to teaching it. So too many people say, well, I want to be able to understand everything there. Well, when you have an infinite mind, then you will understand a book that has an infinite application. But until then, you're finite, and you'll never understand it all. So just get over it. You're a creature. This is written by the Creator, and you need to know it. Second, we need to pray that God would strengthen us by faith and that God would be the one to strengthen us, and we need to memorize promises, and we need to uh, claim them. And then fourth, we need to practice it. We need to implement it, practice it in our thinking, in small areas first and then large areas later. We we have to get, uh, you have to put on the training wheels of faith before you can take the training wheels off. And once again, it's a learning process. Second verse, David expresses what he is going to do as he comes under adversity. He's going to turn to God in prayer. He uses a, a very dramatic language here. He says, I cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. And this is what is called synthetic parallelism, where the second line expands on the first line. The first line, he's stating what he is going to do as he faces adversity is he's going to turn to God in prayer. It is through prayer that we often express many of what I've defined as the spiritual skills or problem-solving devices. We express faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation. Many things are expressed through faith, through prayer. It's our means of communicating to God. And he's saying, I cry out to God. Sometimes this could even be, I scream to God. If anybody has never screamed to God in prayer, you just haven't faced living in a devil's world honestly. Uh, and you haven't had much in terms of adversity. And that's the censor. This isn't just, well, I had a nice, calm conversation with God. I cried out to him in the midst of this difficulty. And God here is described with another graphic, and I think an important term, God most high. In the Hebrew, this is the phrase El Elyon. El is sort of the generic term in Hebrew, later Aramaic, for God. Just like our word G-O-D is a generic term for deity. If people refer to all sorts of alleged deities as G-O-D. But God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has a personal name, and that personal name is Yahweh. And often we see it in combination that he is uh, the Lord Yahweh or Yahweh God, uh, Elohim, uh, Yahweh Elohim. But here it is God Most High, and that emphasizes who he is. It emphasizes his sovereignty. It emphasizes his majesty, majesty. It emphasizes his omnipotence as we think through uh, 
our chart on the essence of God. It emphasizes two or three of those more than any other, but they all come together. In fact, this term, El Elyon, is used to represent God 22 times in the Psalms. Sometimes it's in the phrase, God most high. At other times, it's in the phrase, the most high. Other times, it is in the phrase, Yahweh, the most high. But is it expressing his sovereignty? Now, this comes out of a particular incident in the Old Testament. And and what's interesting is as you read your Bible, one of the things that you can do is highlight the different names that are given to God at different times. And what I like to do in my Bible is that when I see in the in the various columns that you have in your typical layout in a Bible, I will put like a topical index at the top of the page so that I can find things better, underline a verse, and then I'll put a note up at the top. And you have phrases like God the Almighty. You have other phrases, El Shaddai. These come out of the life of Abraham. And El Elyon also comes out of the life of Abraham. And so if you are interested, you can turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 14. You don't have to go there. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the story. This is an episode that comes out of the initial command that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God commanded Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we have the, the summary of what will become the Abrahamic covenant, where God tells Abraham to leave his home over in Mesopotamia and to go to, to a land that God is going to show him. Abraham has no idea where he's headed. He just knows that he, he's going to go day by day and the Lord's going to direct him until eventually the Lord's going to say, okay, stop, this is where we're headed. And that God is going to give him this piece of real estate for him and all of his descendants. And God also promises that he will bless his descendants. He will bless those who bless his descendants and he will judge those who treat his Abraham's descendants lightly. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you lightly. Literally, that's what the, the Hebrew text means. And that's the foundation for why even today uh, we are to uh, bless the Jewish people. We are not to curse them or judge them. Anti-Semitism is always going to bring judgment on the anti-Semite. It may be that in the opinion of many Christians that Israel, the Jewish people, are apostate because they haven't accepted Jesus as Messiah, but that condition isn't expressed in, in uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. You're to bless them because they're the Jewish people, not because they're obedient, not because they responded to the gift of the Messiah, but because they're the Jewish people. The, the Abrahamic covenant is an eternal covenant that's still in effect. And part of that covenant is the third verse that says that Abra- that commands Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. And I think that has been demonstrated time and time again in many different ways of the Jewish people. They're the ones who, through whom God gave his word. They were the custodians of Scripture. They're the ones through whom the Savior came. They're the ones through whom salvation came. And just in terms of everyday blessings, they have provided numerous, numerous things. Jewish people are brilliant, and they have provided uh, many different scientific and technological advances. And uh, this is very important. But at the very beginning, Abraham was to be a blessing to his neighbors and to those around him. And an incident occurred that's described in the 14th chapter of Genesis, where you had a four-king alliance, one of the sort of the original axis of evil. And these four kings made up of uh, kings in the area of Babylon. Babylon is always pictured as the hostile enemy of God and his people uh, from the Tower of Babel on. So you had a four-king alliance with the king of Shinar. That's another early name for Babylon. The king of Elam. Uh, the king of Elisar and Golim, and we don't know where those are located. And those four kings came in and 
conquered the area around the Dead Sea. Of course, it wasn't dead at that point. It was alive. They conquered the area, and this is where you had the five cities of the plains. Uh, they're, they're called, we know about Sodom, we know about Gomorrah. There were uh, several others that were located in that area. And for uh, 12 years, they are under tribute to the axis of evil. They've been conquered by those four kings. And finally, they rebelled, and that's described in Genesis 14, uh, verse 3. And when they rebelled, of course, what do you think the axis of evil did? They invaded. They're going to come in, and they're going to bring uh, discipline on those who've rebelled against them, and they're going to try to reinsert, re- reestablish their control. And so they came through, and they conquered all these these five cities of the plains, and they took uh, they took booty and tribute, and they took captives to use as slaves, and they headed back. Uh, north, they circled south of the Dead Sea and headed up uh, across the uh, uh, lower level along the Jordan River, all the way up to the what is now the northern part of Israel, up by um, uh, 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 where up in the north near tel- near the area of the city that is called Dan, and this was uh, uh, an area where. Um, where they were met by Abraham, and Abraham met them with uh, uh, over 300 of his servants, and they defeated them and rescued all of the uh, all of the captives, and they rescued all of the booty, and then Abram headed south. So now he's been a blessing to his neighbors. He wanted to save his nephew Lot and his wife and his family. And by doing so, he rescued everyone else. And then he comes back to a city, small, very, very small uh, city named Salem, which is the original name of what became known as Jerusalem. The last two syllables are Salem. And there, Salem is ruled by um, a man given the title Melchizedek are the king of righteousness. And so Melchizedek comes out and functions like a priest. So he seems to be a priest king. Uh, he is the priest of El Elyon, God Most High. Jewish tradition says that this is uh, Shem, uh, one of Noah's three sons. And chronologically, Shem would still be alive. He doesn't die until uh, Abraham is about 160 to 170 years of age. I don't know if that's true, but this isn't his name. This is his title. And he seems to be a worshiper of God. He is a believer. And there, uh, some people have suggested this is a shifting here of the leadership of the Gentiles to the leadership of Abraham and his descendants. And so Melchizedek comes out, brings bread and wine, which is typical in any meal, uh, showing fellowship, showing partnership. And he, that is Melchizedek, blessed him, that is Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, saying it a second time, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him, that is Abraham, gave to Melchizedek a tithe, that is 10%. That is a description of what, Melchizedek, of what Abraham did. It is not a prescription. Now, often you will hear people say, tithing starts here. Well, there's no command to tithe. There's commands to give and to give generously and abundantly. And maybe a tithe is just a little bit on the short side and not the generous side. You never know. I would hate to limit somebody to 10%. Um, it is uh, in the New Testament, we're to give as God has prospered us. So this is the pattern here. And El Elyon, God Most High, that, that title emphasizes the God, God's superiority over all the other gods, over all the pe- people. It emphasizes the fact that he is the creator God and that he is the one who rules his creation. He is sovereign. 
You see this in some of the Psalms where his this title is used in Psalm uh, 47.2. For the Lord, that is for Yahweh Most High, is awesome. He is the great king over all the earth. Now, the reason I I highlight it, you can't see it real well, the, the blue here, is that the first statement is for is talking about Yahweh Most High, and it attributes to him the fact that he is awesome. So that's the first line. The second line, it's synthetic parallelism, because the second line is going to tell us what it means to be awesome. What it means to be awesome is that he is the great king. He's the ruler over all the earth. So the first line states that he's awesome. The second line unpacks that and tells us what that means. In Psalm 83:18, which is a psalm of Asaph, who calls upon God to destroy his enemies and to destroy the enemies of Israel, and when he expresses why he, or the rationale for this, he says that they may know that you, whose name alone is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. So you are to defeat our enemies so that people understand your authority and that you are the ruler over heaven and earth. Psalm 91.1 and then Psalm 91.9 both use this appellation that he is the most high. Uh, It says in verse 1, He who dwells in the secret place of the most high, talking about the person who is walking closely with God, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Remind you of the imagery of abiding under the wings or being protected by the wings of God. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge. There we have that same imagery that we find in Psalm 57, that God is our hiding place. He is our refuge. Even the Most High, your dwelling place. So we see in verse 2 that the way David faces his adversity is he cries out to God. This would not exclude screaming out to God. Uh, In pain, in adversity, in frustration, I cry out to God most high. I cry out to him because he is the sovereign God. He is the ruler of all things. And that is unpacked. The title, El Elyon, gets unpacked in the second line. Again, this is the essence of synthetic parallelism. You state something in the first line and then unpack it in the second line. To God who performs all things for me. The Hebrew word there is that indicates that it is someone who carries out his plan. He does what he planned to do. So God is the God who has a plan. He is sovereign. And God has a plan we know for David. He has at this point told David that he will be the king of Israel, though David is not yet king. Saul is still the king. David is being chased and persecuted by by Saul, but he will work out his plan. So, So this is an expression of confidence on David's part that God will perform his plan. He's promised it. He will bring it to pass. So even though he's crying to God for mercy, He has confidence that God will fulfill his plan and purposes to him. Then he explains this a little further. The third verse develops out of the second. God is the one who will perform all things for me, perform his plan for me. Well, how's God going to do that? Have you ever thought, well, how is God going to do that? Well, here David gives us a sense of how he's going to do that. He says God's going to send, send forth Uh, from heaven and save me. God is in control of his angels. He'll direct his angels and the forces of the universe to do uh, what will protect me. And twice we have this verb, he shall send. Now, the first line says he's going to send from heaven and save me. That's a general statement. Well, how is God going to send from heaven? What's he going to send? What's he going to do? What, What is the means by which God is going to deliver deliver David. So we have this first line, he shall send from heaven and save me. We have a second line, he reproaches the one who would swallow me up. That's a little ambiguous in the English. I'll try to explain that in just a minute. 
But then the last line in this verse tells us what he's going to do in terms of sending from heaven and saving me. David says, God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. It is through his faithful love, that's mercy, chesed, and his truth, that's his faithful revelation of his word. We'll look at that in a minute. So he'll send forth from heaven and save me. That's the Hebrew verb yasha. Uh, it means to deliver, to save. It is often the word that relates to our personal salvation or justification uh, and has to do with uh, salvation in terms of eternal life. But in the Old Testament, that's not the major meaning. The major meaning in the Old Testament is that God's going to rescue me from my circumstances. God's going to heal me from physical disease. He's going to deliver me from my enemies and hostility. And so the idea is God is going to intervene from heaven, and he is going to deliver David from these enemies. That's the idea. That's how it should be understood. God will send from heaven and deliver me. And um, this is also Yeshua's the same verb that is the root of the name Joshua, Yehoshua, as well as Jesus, which is just a form of that name, Yeshua, is based on that, that verb meaning to save. So context tells us whether that's being saved from something in the temporal realm or, or eternal. Uh, we see something about this in um, in verse uh, in Psalm 3, verses 1 to 5, gives us a little bit of a hint as to how this works. There we see David doing the same thing. It's a lament psalm. And one of the reasons I go to these other psalms is because I want you to get a sense of how these themes work through the psalms, so that when you read the psalms, it's, it, you have these aha moments, and you understand how these different uh, Psalms all express the same kinds of ideas. And so here he's talking about his enemies who've increased and they trouble him. Many are they who rise up against me. See, David didn't have an easy life. He was always facing opposition. He had opposition from the media. He had opposition from different people in his in his uh, uh uh, cabinet, his organization, he had traitors that turned against him. even his own family. His son, Absalom, is going to lead a revolt against him, and a civil war is going to develop from that. And so we don't know the circumstances around Psalm 3. He's, he's just crying out to God in the midst of this adversity, and he says, Many are they who say of me, there's no help for him in God. They're defeatists. They, they don't think God can deliver David. He's going to end a bad way. But the word there for help is the same word. There's no salvation for David in God. There's no deliverance. God's not going to be able to get him out of this mess. But then in verse 3, we see how David shifts his mental focus. That's the same kind of thing we need to do. We get into situations where we just feel overwhelmed by the circumstances, and we get discouraged, we get depressed, we get frustrated, we get angry. Uh, when that goes on for a while, we can really get depressed. But what we have to do is focus on the God who is greater than the problem and not the situation, the circumstance, or the problem. And that's what we see, David. The but yous are so important in these lament psalms because what David is doing is he's shifting his mental focus from the problem to the creator. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. He begins to think about all the positive things, all the things God has done for him, how God has protected him in the past, how God has provided for him in the past. And so he is focusing on those things. And he says in verse 4, I cried out to the Lord with my voice. There's another thing. I think a lot of people think, oh, God's not going to listen to me if I start yelling at him. David's yelling at God a lot in the Psalms. He expresses his frustration because he's, he's, he's honest. He's screaming, Lord, help me. And he says, I cried out to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me 
from his holy hill, which is just another way to talk about uh, about heaven. And, and it probably alludes to the Temple Mount, because this is where they would worship God. The temple's not there yet, but eventually it would be. And this is where they were setting it aside, and, and perhaps there was elements of the, there was an altar there after a certain point. And the results of it, verse 5, I laid down and slept. Now, this shows that he's developed a relaxed mental attitude. Why? Because he's put it in the Lord's hands. He's done what we'll study in First Peter 5, 7. He's cast his care upon the Lord because the Lord cares for him. He's learned to trust him, to take refuge. Once he realizes he can truly take refuge in the Lord, he can just close his eyes and go to sleep while the storm rages around him. He can do what he knows he needs to do, which is rest and relax, because God is going to sustain him. So these five verses give us a great picture of what he's talking about in Psalm 57, about taking refuge in the shadow of God's wings. So verse 3 says that not only will God send from heaven and deliver me, but that God does something else. God is going to sort of flip it onto his enemies. He's going to turn it back on his enemies. Uh, he, the, his enemies, usually this word reproach, which is the word haraf in, in, in Hebrew, means to taunt or to shame, to cast uh, or to, to scorn someone. Usually this is used of the enemies casting scorn or reproach on David. But in this passage, and this is the only one where it occurs, God is reproaching the enemy. He's shaming them. He's going to shame them in this situation. And so David says, first thing, he's going to deliver me from heaven. Second, he's going to shame the one who, and then it's the word swallow me up, but it's this word that we also saw in Psalm 56, sha'af, which means to trample. They want to trample me. They want to crush me. They want to completely destroy me. Swallow is a poor translation. That's from the King James and New King James. So he's going to shame the one who wants to trample me. We saw it in Psalm 56.1. We saw the same language, Hanan, to be merciful to me. Why? Because man would crush me. He would trample me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. So it's the same idea, just showing the parallel, the similarity with Psalm 56. So he's going to send from heaven and save me. He should shame the one who would trample me. And then we see, as I pointed out earlier, that he's going to do this by sending forth his faithful, loyal love. It's really talking about God's character. And because of God's character, he's going to intervene a certain way. And so we have these two words that are going to be used again when we get down to verse 10 in Psalm 57, 10. Here, God will send forth his mercy and his truth. Actually, what he's saying is God's going to send forth that which derives from his mercy and his truth. And the word for mercy is a very important word in the study of the Psalms. Usually, in the New American Standard, it's consistent in translating it loving kindness. And it has to do with God's faithful, loyal love based on his covenant promises. God's going to do what he says he's going to do. And if we claim promises, God's going to be faithful to those promises. So He's going. He, on the one hand, God has this, this loving kindness, this faithful, loyal love. And on the other side, this idea of, of truth. Now, the Hebrew, there's a lot of debate among Hebrew scholars over the exact meaning of this word that's um, translated in the King James and New King James as truth, but in a lot of mo more modern translations, and it's not really related to translation theory or anything. I think it has to do with a better understanding of the root meaning of emmet, is faithfulness. It comes from the word firmness. Uh, a, a form of this word is used to describe the foundations of the pillars of the of Solomon's temple. And these, these pillars weighed an enormous amount. And so there has to be a foundation that's immovable, that's unshakable to hold them up 
and to sustain them. And that's the idea in the root meaning of emmet, is this idea of firmness, stability, faithfulness, certainty. And so uh, New American Standard and New King James translated as truth, which has to do with, uh, is also unshakable and uh, immutable. Uh, the English Standard Version and the uh, New uh, English Translation translated as faithfulness, as do many others, but those are the ones that are probably a little more common in our area. So this is talking about God's own character, I believe, that it is the foundation for his action. And it's his action that he's really talking about, but he goes to that which causes his action. We find a combination of these terms many times in Scripture, in Genesis 24, uh, 27, I believe it's uh, Eliezer says, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. This is when he is uh, the the wife of Isaac, uh, Rebecca, is being revealed to him. And so God is the God of mercy and truth. He's faithful to his covenant to Abraham. We see it in Exodus uh, 34.6. Uh, when when God is passing before uh, Moses, we read in the NET translation, the first, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and emmet, translated as loyal love and faithfulness in the NET. In the New King James, it's the Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. So you see that we've struggled a little bit trying to find the right ways in English to express these two terms, but they're frequently linked together. Psalm 119, 142 your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Sometimes that's translated, your law is faithful, it's reliable. Uh, truth is, tr- is valuable because it's true. Therefore, you can rely on it, and it is stable. Psalm 119, 151, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are imminent. They're all faithful, they're all true. Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth. It's faithful, reliable, dependable. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. So Psalm 153 is emphasizing that uh, it is God's truth and mercy, his chesed and his emmet, that is the source of his intervention in our lives. So we can retranslate the phrase or... um, Uh, sort of expanded translation, God shall send from heaven and deliver me. He shames the one who would trample me. God shall send forth his covenant faithfulness and his truth. Or or we could even uh, paraphrase it, I guess, God shall send forth because of his covenant faithfulness and truth, even though that's not used in the text, that's the idea. Then when we get to verse 4, David expresses the problem. The problem is he's surrounded by these these hostile enemies, and he compares them to ravenous beasts, to lions who seek to destroy him. He says, my soul is among the lions. And we can almost picture David uh, thinking of himself as a lamb surrounded by lions who would seek to kill him and eat him and absolutely destroy him. And the phrase, my soul, is often used as a reference to one's life or oneself. And last time I pointed this out from the headlines in the Washington Post from the sinking of the Titanic, that 1,800 souls were lost. That is, lives. So he's saying, my life, my very life, my being is among these lions being surrounded, and they they lie in wait. So he says, I lie among the sons of men. So that clarifies that he's not talking about literal lions. He's talking about these, these men that would seek to destroy him like lions would. 
and he goes on to say they are set on fire, that they, they um, like a fire devours and destroys. So that's what these men do. They are set on devouring him and destroying him. Um, this is indicated by what they say. Their teeth are spears and arrows. He's not talking about their teeth. They're not filing down their teeth. He's talking about what their mouth produces. It produces words. And we've seen this in, in studying about the sins of the tongue, that again and again and again in the Psalms, David compares uh, these sins uh, of gossip and slander and maligning, these hateful sayings, these abusive sayings, to, to weapons that are meant to destroy, to cut, and to pierce. And he uses that same imagery here with spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. And so just as a sword cuts and pierces and destroys and takes life, so that is what their words can do. Words are extremely uh, malicious. And so then he says in verse 5, now he focuses on God. He says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be above all of the earth. This is repeated again in verse 11, so that together they form uh, sort of a chorus. Uh, it's re stated the first time in verse 5, stated again in verse 11. And the command there, which is exp this imperative here, is expressing a desire on David's part, that God's name, his character, would be honored, would be respected, would be lifted up by the people, that God would praise him and talk about his great deeds in intervening in their lives. And so he says, because he knows God's going to intervene in his life, uh, may God be exalted as a result of his intervention in this situation or circumstance with David. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, uh, the heavens, the literal heavens that he will, it would, is the domain of the stars, which are often associated with the false God. So again, this is the idea of God most high. He's elevated above the false gods and the demons and the angels. May God be exalted above the heavens where the angels dwell. Let your glory be above the earth. See, this is an example of, of syn, uh, synonymous parallelism. Uh, your glory, that's the idea of that which is exalted, your essence, be above all the earth. It's above the heavens and above all the earth are, are parallel to each other. So he's praising that God's essence would be uh, exalted above uh, everything that God has created. The word there for glory, we'll see it again in this psalm, is the Hebrew word kavod, which means heavy has to do with that which is which is weighty, that which is serious, that which is significant. Uh, and, and it's a, really a, an idiom for the entirety of God's essence. We see this in, in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in context, what that is saying is that we all fall short of the sum total of God's essence. We fall short of his essence. So when you read this idiom, you should read, let your essence, let all of your attributes be above all of the earth. And so it's focusing on that. Verse 6, it continues to talk about what they're doing. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They've dug a pit before me into the midst of it. They themselves have fallen. See how there's a twist here. They've dug this pit for me, but God's going to turn the tables on them. They're the ones who are going to be caught in the trap and be destroyed, not I. So there's four different stanzas here, and we can break them down this way. And when we do, we see that the first stanza A and the third stanza C are both talking about what the enemy is doing. They've prepared a net for my steps. It's the picture of trying to trap a wild animal and destroy him. They've prepared a net for my steps. They've dug a pit uh, before me trying to trap me. And then B and C tell us the impact of what they're doing. 
uh, because of the way they consist- consistently are trying to trap David, uh, he's, he's discouraged. My soul is bowed down. He's expressing his discouragement, uh, maybe even depression. He's tired of fighting the battle. They're constantly opposing me. But then there's a fourth, the fourth line is, shows the impact on the plotters, that God turns the table on them. In the midst of all their plotting and all of their machinations and all of their attempts to destroy David, God flips it back on them, and they're the ones that are destroyed. So verse 6, they've prepared a net for my steps, but they'll fall into it. Verse 7, David reaffirms his loyalty to God. My heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. There's that repetition of words once again. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. The word there for steadfast is an interesting word. It means to make a commitment to something. It's to establish your heart, that here I stand. There's a very famous episode where uh, Martin Luther, the great German reformer who wants to uh, restore biblical truth to Christianity in in Europe, uh, he he didn't start out to, to uh, start a movement apart from the Roman Catholic Church. He just wanted to get back to the Bible, the, one of the original back to the Bible movements. And he is brought up at the Council of Worms on trial. And as he defends himself, he ends by pointing to the Bible and says, here I stand, I can do nothing else. That's a statement of that David is making here. My heart is steadfast. My heart is established. I'm committed to the Word of God, the truth of God, and I can't do anything else. And this reminds me, it's the same word is used, of Ezra. And Ezra 7.10, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, tells us about Ezra's character and his spiritual life. He says, as a young man, Ezra had prepared his heart. And that word prepared is the same word. He established, he made a commitment that this is what my life is going to be about. Ezra had prepared his heart to do what? Number one, to seek the law of the Lord. He's going to learn it. He's going to know it. He's going to make it a part of his thinking and a part of his life. But not just to know it, but to do it. That's the second thing. He committed himself to, first of all, seek the law of the Lord. Secondly, to do the Lord of the law of the Lord. Third, to teach the statutes and the ordinances in Israel. So he's going to learn it, he's going to apply it, and then he's going to teach others. That's what David is saying. He's making a statement of his loyalty, his steadfastness to God, and that because of that, he's going to sing and give praise to God. He's going to tell people what God has done. And so in verse 8, he says, Awake, my glory, and that's the same word we saw earlier, related to essence. And here he's talking about God. He's calling upon God to awake and intervene in his life. And then he cries out, awake, lute and heart, because they are going to express the glory of God. And that as a result, he will awaken the dawn with his music as he praises God. And then he reaffirms this. In verse 9, he says, I will praise you, O Lord, among the people. And this is the word ama, or uma here in the plural. I will sing to you among the nations. But it's the same word in both places. You don't have goyim there. You just have the nations. Uh, uh, Am Israel is the people of Israel. And that's that same word, am. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. So this is his declaration of praise. This is how most uh, lament psalms end, where he starts off focusing on the problem. He focuses on God's character, and God is the solution. And then he expresses his desire to uh, praise God and to tell the people about how God has intervened and what God has done. Now, why is he going to praise God? Why is he going to sing? That's the next verse. Verse 10, For your mercy, your chesed, 
reaches unto the heavens, and your truth, your emmet, unto the clouds. This takes us back to what he said in verse 3. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. And then he concludes by repeating what he said back in verse 5. Be exalted. May God be exalted. May God be lifted up. May God, may, may what God has done be told to the people so that they will respect him and honor him. May he be lifted up above all the heavens because he is El Elyon, the most high God. Let your glory be above all the earth. So David focuses on Saul. Saul's not a problem. God's the God most high. He's the one who can solve my problems. And the same thing is true for us. Same question I answered the last time. How can we be like this? We have to think about God. We have to find time to reflect upon who God is and what he has done. We can look at what he's done in history, read the Bible. We can look at what he's done in our own lives. And that gives us confidence that if he has intervened in the past, he will intervene in the future, that we can therefore take refuge in God and trust in his protection. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon this psalm, to come to understand it, what it means, its impact on our own mental attitude, our own thinking, how it sets a standard for how we should pray and how we should praise. That this is a psalm that focuses on your character but be, and, and your position, that you are above everything in your creation because you are distinct and set apart from your creation. And Father, we pray that as we as we study and as we read, as we reflect, that this won't be just a, a, an academic exercise, but it will impact our very perceptions and reactions to the circumstances of our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.